Welcome on Democracy. I am Fred Wellman, your host, coming to you from the beating heart of Missouri, uh, between holiday suburbs of St. Louis. You know, we are in that we're in that weird week before the New Year's uh, events where every day sort of blends together. Your, your favorite restaurants are full of families and uh, even the mall is a bit busy. But I'm really excited to have a great guest this today who uh, is taking time out of his holidays and I think sick family members for what I hear. <laughs> so uh, let's not waste too much time. He's got to get back to tending to them. So with that, that let's get on with the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. As I mentioned, I am Fred Wellman, host of On Democracy, the FP Wellman. Hope you're in the right place. You can find us everywhere. Uh, this has been, uh, as a, you know, it's a great holiday season. I hope you guys had good holidays. I certainly had a great one while he'll been traveling or stuck traveling. Thanks to Southwest Airlines. I, I, I was lucky that our guest was able to join us nonetheless. Um, I've been having the best luck getting cool guests to join the show. And this week is no exception. I've been trying to get Jason on for a while. So we finally made a deal. So, so you know, we got, uh, if you know him, you know him. Uh, Jason Kanner, of course, author of two New York Times bestselling books, Outside the Wire, 10 Lessons, 10 Lessons I've Learned in Everyday Courage, and of course, Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD, which is a gripping read, uh, as well as a children's book. Courage is, yeah, which yeah. is untrue. I love it, man. Currently, you're the president of the National Expansion and Veterans Committee Project, which we're going to talk about. Uh, you're also the host of Majority 54, one of the nation's most popular political podcasts. And I really enjoyed, you know, we, I think we connected a little while ago, but of course, during the fall, Kabul, uh, you found an Afghan Rescue Project. We're going to talk about that a little bit, too. So without any wasting any time, Jason, man, welcome to the show. And thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. You bet. Thanks for having me, Fred. Good to see you. So, you know, I, I I think I told you before I kind of start every show off. I like to talk to people like, you know, how'd you get here? Now I've read your books so that, <laughs> you know, a lot of it, I think, I think folks who follow you do know, but, but when you know, I was, you know, you've had, you, you, you've got a lot going on. You've got winter baseball practice, among other things, of course, what you do. <laughs> I've read your book, you know, but you know, you've been on a unique journey from running for office to winning office to, you know, then recognize your need to address your PTSD, you host a popular podcast, VCP, ARP. Um, your story is one, you know, one thread I constantly see, Jason, is it's driven by service, right? You, you've had this long thread of service, um, if you read that. You know, where did that drive start from? You know, you, you are here today. Where did that drive to serve really start with you, you think? I think it came from my parents, which is probably true for a lot of people, probably true for yeah. you as well. Um, yep. You know, my folks were juvenile probation officers. That's how they met. Uh, my dad was also a cop part-time. He was like a, a, a part-time cop. Like, like he, he worked, his night job was he was a police officer in Kansas City. Uh, and then his day job was he was a juvenile probation officer. So he and my mom would go on dates by going to serve warrants. Um, and, and so that's, you know, before I was born. Uh, and that's how they met. Um, and so it's not as if I grew up in a household where it was like, you will be in public service. It was more just their example. Um, you know, they took kids in whose families were struggling, like friends of mine who, you know, the families were going through a rough patch and my folks would just set up another spot at the dinner table. And then that kid uh, would be living in the house. And it was great for me. I mean, it was like every night was a slumber party where my, my best friends were there. Um, and so they became my brothers. So like at my wedding, uh, all of my groomsmen were my brothers, uh, none of right. whom are my biological brothers. Um, right. one of whom is my adopted younger brother who was adopted at birth, but the rest are guys who came into the family. And, uh, and so I think that's where a lot of it came from just the sense that if you have the ability to help somebody you're supposed to. And then when nine 11 happened, 
uh, it just went from the maybe someday, like service went from the maybe someday category in my mind to I'm going to do this and then figure out the rest of my life afterwards. And it just, from there, I, I just have never been interested in a job that made really good money, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> clearly uh, we yeah. share that problem. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I have the luxury of course, now, uh, now that I've entered my forties, I have the luxury of, you know, my wife, my wife does pretty well. So it's easy for me to say, you know, and sound very altruistic. Um, but the truth is, yeah, I mean, I've just, I've never been good at being a for-profit person. Uh, so here I am. Here you are. Well, I, I understand that more than anybody. I, I, I think Heather always wants me to try and get a, a real job. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's this mean? <laughs> I had one once, you know. You know, when preparing to talk with you, you know, it really is an embarrassment of riches to choose from, you know, and, and to where you start. And, you know, we, we had talked about a lot of the, the things you are. As you mentioned, you, you have a lot of day jobs, actually. Uh, you, you have several day jobs. But I did want to start off, you know, this is the podcast about democracy, right? And, and, and I'd say, you wrote a really great piece after the midterms in, on in Kansas City Star about how you know the red wave was supposed to come and it was going to wash away all these things, and it, it held. Uh, the bulwark held. The, the Democrats, of course, didn't um, didn't lose the Senate, and we, in a lot of ways, it did much better expected. We did lose the House a little bit. You know, it's been kind of an insane series of events ever since then, right? We we while the bulwark did hold, we're seeing some real threats. I mean, the and of course this George Santos thing. I have to talk about George Santos, but mm -hmm. you know, do you still feel like uh, what you wrote that week is is accurate that the bulwarks held, or or do you still see the danger? And 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 what is your take on where we stand today, some two months after the midterm? Well, the danger is definitely still there, but what happened, I think in the midterms, at least for me, and I think for other people too, is it felt like uh, we went to the precipice and it really, I mean, it really felt like it was, we were sort of in our last throes of democracy. Right. Like, I mean, it 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 really seemed like they were going to consolidate uh, power over, over the levers that mattered. And then they were going to turn those levers and it, and it was going to get to a point where it's not beyond, uh, you know, it's not a point of no return, but it's a point of unlikely return. And it was getting unlikelier with each election where they were amassing power over state legislatures and over secretary of state offices in particular. And what we ended up processing as this breath of like relief, I think actually in retrospect was a victory because if you look at it, uh, you know, pro-democracy forces, which is to say the Democrats and, or, you know, like one Republican in, in, uh, Georgia Raffensperger, who was not anti-democracy, uh, as far as we can tell, um, hmm. won in the secretary of state races, which is right. a, a huge, huge deal. I mean, and, and in fact, like if you look at Arizona, where my friend Adrian Fontes, he led the whole ticket running as the pro-democracy secretary of state candidate. And I can just tell you, as someone who has been a secretary of state and who has run for secretary of state, it's not an office where you usually lead the ticket, <laughs> you know, I mean, because right. most people are like, uh, you know, it used to be people were like, well, what do you, you keep the peace with other states? What do you do? Um, <laughs> but now everybody knows. And, right. All of a sudden we matter, right? Right. And so that, um, that really, I found that really inspiring and I take it less as like a, oh, we dodged a bullet. And, I, and as a little time went on, I realized it was, we dodged a bullet, but now they left themselves 
open. It, you know, it's like you, it's like two boxers are squaring off, and a guy pulls back, and he's going to just throw a huge haymaker of a punch. But if he misses, he's somewhat defenseless. And I feel like right. that's kind of where we are. We're in a real opportunity to seriously shift the momentum back toward you know, really strengthening our democracy as opposed to constantly losing it. Right. And, you know, you're a baseball guy, right? And I use, I, I tend to, you're much more of a baseball guy than I am, by the way. And I appreciate that because I'm much more <laughs> old and broken than you are. <laughs> but it is one thing I tell a lot of is that the, the old yarn that, you know, the guys are the, the biggest home run hitters. The guys are always hitting for the fence or also the strikeout Kings. Right. Right. <laughs> and so when you're always going for the fence, tend to strike out. Now I also use that analogy a lot in our party, in the democratic party that, you know, we're constantly going for the big strike, right? We're going for the big hit and we strike out a lot because of that. We don't play small ball well, right? We, mm-hmm. we, 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 one thing I've been talking about on the show a lot lately, um, probably listeners are sick of it, <laughs> is the fact that 23 Republicans ran unopposed for Congress, right? Including Paul Gosar, one of the most ridiculous people in the entire United States, re- end up running unopposed. And I see, like, it, it does feel like sometimes the Democratic Party is constantly looking for that big hit. They're going for all the Congress or they're going for the White House and they're not playing the small ball, like you mentioned, the state legislature level, the Secretary of State level, and the mm-hmm. Congress every, running everywhere. Whereas only only six Democrats run unopposed. Do you see that kind of like it as, as a baseball guy? I mean, is is part of our problem? We're always looking for the big hit instead of going to play that small ball to get people on base. Absolutely. And what it looks like is is Democrats watching MSNBC instead of reading their local paper, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's right. like how many right. how many how many Democratic? I mean, I'm talking Democratic donors. How many Democratic donors do you know? Like people who max out give I don't know what it is now three grand or whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, and it was less than that when I was still asking for max out checks. But, um, you know, people who give those checks and they watch Rachel Maddow or whatever every night, but they don't know who their state legislator is. There's right. a lot of that in the Democratic Party. Now, look, there's probably a lot of that in the Republican Party, but it hurts us more in the Democratic Party because the Republican politicians have gotten much more polished at using those levers of power. And that's a fundamental philosophical difference between the parties, right? Uh, At least at the political actor level, which is that Democrats, like it's why we are so much more likely to hang on to norms, right or wrong, Uh, you know, and whereas, and Trump was able to run all over that and and DeSantis is now. And so because of that, um, we are much less likely to think of offices like school board or uh, mayors that appoint people who oversee some elections or, um, you know, state legislators certainly as really important because we tend to think in big philosophical ideas when we should more often be thinking tactically, right? I mean, you and I would talk about it as the difference between strategy and tactics, right? We love talking about strategy in the Democratic Party. We're like a bunch of people who think they're generals looking at a sand table talking about moving divisions when what's really happening is, you know, it's a, it's a block to block war. Uh, and and it's like, are you going to take this street and hold it or are you not? And oftentimes the Republicans are in that fight. And so, yeah, I do think that, you know, I would change the analogy, I guess, a little. It's it's. Yeah, it it is the home run oriented analogy, but it might be even worse than that. It might be like we just look at the at the score afterwards. Like we don't even look right. at the box score. We don't even look at the batting averages. <laughs> We're just like, did they win or did they lose? Right. Um, and and we gotta we gotta boil down. We gotta um, to take this analogy way too far. We've got to be <laughs> interested in player development in the farm system, right? And and when we get there, uh, we have things happen like sweeping all of the important secretary of state races in this last election. 
Right. That's, that's exactly the analogy you use, by the way. If you, I, I think we may have talked about it before, but I, when I guess I, I spoke down in Springfield back but, uh, at the at their, the Democrat Party's convention there in Ozark or in Springfield. And I, I always liken you know, the Republicans and the, the, the Democrats as two different systems, right? You've got the National League, the Republicans, uh, they've invested in, in Little League, you know, Pop Warner, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, College Ball, you know, the American League Ball or American Legion Ball. And then, of course, high school, college minor league. And, and they build these players up and they They've got a whole bench deep and they build these teams that go on forever on the democratic side we open the parks every spring and say look if you played ball come on out yeah. <laughs> right, right you know we'll build and then about every four years we win the world series or maybe eight years you know and that's good mm-hmm. you know but there's a completely different development system um you know one of the things i've been looking at since the midterm and you may hear about soon i'll probably tell you later is is that just that is what is the development system on our side and how do we do a better job of running everywhere but but that's the things and and now we ended up with a guy like george santos up in new york i know you've been following that i can't resist mm-hmm. following that um, yeah. one of the most tough tough interviews i've seen on the guy was freaking tulsi gabbard which i Still have not recovered from seeing <laughs> that Tulsi Gar- Tulsi Gabbard took him to town. But Tulsi was a, re- a representative, you know, a congressman. She was actually not a in, when she served as a member of Congress. She wasn't bad. I worked with her on veterans issues. Um, mm-hmm. This guy, how did he get so far? I mean, a lot of people were beating up the Dems, but in the end, you know, that he he got far. You've run for office. I mean, we used to joke about, you know, oh, I'm worried. I, I have a tax lien from ten years ago. This guy made up his entire freaking biography. Well, if you look at the stuff he made up, it was the kind of stuff that an opposition researcher is unlikely to be able to get to, right? Whereas right. the New York Times can, because right. like if you call up Baruch College and you're an opposition researcher for the DSCC, I'm not sure they're going to give you information on whether or not somebody graduated from there. If you call up right. you know, Goldman Sachs or Citibank, I'm not sure they're going to tell you, right? right? In fact, they're likely not going to. But if you're the New York Times they're likely going to tell you in both cases. So, you know, that's one area where he was evil and devious and, and kind of gross, but smart. Uh, and that he he was banking on the idea, I guess. I mean, but let's be honest with guys like this. I don't think that it starts out as, well, I'm going to do some stuff. I'm going to make up some stuff that the opposition researchers won't find. You know, what happens with these guys is it's the same as the guys who get in trouble for stolen valor, right? Like that right. guy yeah, running in uh, Ohio. That's why you and I get it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Because what happens is with those guys, you know, yep. is they start telling a story in a bar. And the next thing they know, their buddy, they're at a different bar with different people and their buddy's like, hey, tell that story. And all of a sudden that's their story. And after a while, they got to run with it. This guy was telling somebody that he went to this college and he worked at this place and he just kept doing it. And then he found himself pulled into politics because he was spouting off about something or other. And then it just sort of crept away from him, you know? And yeah. and I think that's what happened. Um, and it is fascinating to watch now where He's saying, look, I'm, I'm going to go there and I'm just going to vote the way I told people I'm going to vote. And the thing about that is, is when it comes to congressional and Senate races at this point, we're living in a highly parliamentary system where people really don't care as much who their member is. They care how their member votes. Now, when you've been in for a while, it's different, right? When you've been in for a while and you've had the opportunity to touch a lot of people, to go to a lot of schools and to show up at a lot of ribbon cuttings and to have your constituent services people do a lot of work in the community, well, that's different. That's the advantage of incumbency. But when it's an open seat, I mean, there's no better evidence for this than Georgia, where there are so many people who voted for Herschel Walker in Georgia and made it very close who were like, yeah, I get it. This guy is totally unqualified, but he'll do, you know, he'll push the buttons literally that I want him to push. And that's why you don't really see that in governor's races, right? Like you, you in governor's races where people understand 
oh, they got to be in charge of some stuff and it might affect my life. Like it would be bad if they are bad at their job. You, you see the qualifications matter a lot more, but uh, look, I think it'd be more difficult for him to get reelected. I don't think it's going to be impossible. I think, you know, I don't I know. know what our extradition relationship Republican. is like with right. Brazil. Cause apparently he's <laughs> got a problem there, but other than that, yeah. you know, we'll see. Yeah. It does look at some criminal exposure. I mean, there's word that $700,000 come from the Atlantis campaign for a business that didn't exist a year and a half ago. That, that yeah, no, he's yeah, probably in trouble for that. That's going to be, he's in issue. trouble. And Tish James yeah. is rolling in. Tish James scares me and I'm like, I'm on the inner state. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's a real AG. You know, she's so aggressive. Prosecute people. She is aggressive. Yeah. And a uh, terrific speaker. I got to see her in New York. I went to the uh, congressional black caucus pack, uh, retreat in New York the last summer and she's just a terrific uh, speaker and knows what she's doing and and That's she's awesome. very capable so yeah if there's I do think there's a criminal exposure I think it'll get seated you know I, th- I don't think mm-hmm. McCarthy is going to give up I mean you know it, it's it's a vote and he's got a thin margin but uh, not only that you, know. you even if it wasn't a thin margin when you're a legislative leader like that it's very hard to draw those red lines because as soon as you draw one what about the next one? Right. Like right. for me, it was always like, you know, I remember I, I didn't take, uh, like early on before it was a thing that anybody talked about, I didn't make a distinction between like corporate pack donations and whatever. And, you know, but I, I also had rules like I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't accept lobbyist gifts and stuff like that, but then right. it became sort of, uh, after in, after in citizens United, it became a thing like, are you going to take these or not? And, um, and I ended up, you know, not doing those things. But then I remember when I ran for mayor, um, people came to me and they're like, well, are you going to take any money from developers? And I was like, well, I don't need to. I was raising tons of, you know, I was in a unique position where I was like a national figure who was running for mayor. And I was like, so I'm probably not going to. I was like, but I'm not going to go out and make a rule about it because I'm inevitably going to mess up. I'm inevitably going to take miss something. And, and that's the thing is like, when you're a legislative leader like that, obviously I think that McCarthy should be like, this guy's a fraud and he shouldn't be seated. But I also, it's a reason I never wanted to run for a leadership position because you're constantly setting yourself up for something that you're not, because, because if right. he says, I'm not going to seat this guy because of this, well then what's he do about the fact that people are like, yeah, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is like a white supremacist. Like, like, so you draw the line there, but not here. This guy made up his resume, but this person is a white supremacist. Uh, okay. Well, I won't seat her either. Well, well, what about what this guy said? You know what I mean? And so I'm not defending McCarthy. I'm just saying there's no way that he's yeah. going to do that. Um, yeah. Particularly with the thin margin. Yeah, it makes absolute sense, and I, I, that's a great, really great perspective. And you're absolutely right. And 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 I, what I suspect is we'll see. Well, well, you know, we've heard there's a criminal investigation. We'll leave that. To, you know, they'll 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 kind of do that deferral thing, yeah. and then once he gets indicted, say, well, you know, now it's a criminal thing, so we have to. You know, but they're going to try and let the process run itself for them and keep them out of trouble. You know. Yeah. They, once they, he gets they, indicted, they'll just be like, you have to resign, which will be a problem for him because resigning is going to be part of his plea agreement i'm sure right, right. like that's resigning is going to be part of how he stays out of uh out of prison so yeah yeah it, it's it's high adventure you know and then let's go back to like a happier topic i guess you know i just read that so you've got 300 
uh, of our Afghan partners that you've been working with. And for those who don't know, Jason uh, was a big part of starting the, the Afghan Rescue Project, one of the projects that during the fall of Kabul that uh, a lot of our fellow veterans stood up. I was I had just moved to St. Louis, as you remember, and got involved at the International Institute of St. Louis, which is another part of this yeah. discussion, and uh, was helping them raise you know raise donations for the many refugees we had coming. And 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 Jason did a much more you did a much more direct attack. You were trying to get people out, and you got many of them to Albania. And I, I understand that you, you've gotten three hundred of them on their way to St. Louis now. Tell me about, you know, one, what, how you got involved as two, why St. Louis? For those who don't understand what's happening here that haven't heard the story about St. Louis welcoming refugees. Yeah, well, I mean, the answer to why St. Louis is because of the work that you and a bunch of other people have done in the International Institute of St. Louis, which I appreciate. Um, but yeah, the I'll, I'll see if I can tell a... It's hard to tell a short version of the story, but right, I know um, I threw it on you, didn't I? <laughs> no, it's okay. Uh, I only say that because you know, whenever somebody, when we're like out with friends and someone asks about it, my wife's like, "Just let me tell it." Um, <laughs> she's like, "We don't have time for you to tell it." Well, she's a lawyer um, too. <laughs> she's just not as emotionally invested, so she can. But um, you know what happened was is that in August of twenty one. Uh, like a lot of people, um, I had uh, people there. Um, there were, in particular, there were, there were four guys who, between myself and my battle buddy, who I was over there with, uh, who we were really particularly concerned with, one of which was um, first cousin of my translator and somebody that I met when I was there and who had also worked with U.S. forces. And then the other three were guys who had worked directly with my battle buddy, but who I had met. Uh, all Afghans. And, you know, it's a 20 year war. So at this point, they're not just like yeah. guys, they're guys with families. Um, right. So really, we were looking at about 40 people that we really needed to get out of the country. We, like a lot of people, tried very hard to get them into the airport in Kabul. We were tragically unsuccessful in that. Uh, I say tragically because it was it was the bomb that went off that, that prevented it yeah. and, and killed a lot yeah. of people. Um, fortunately, our people uh, were outside that radius. But then we were thinking we were hosed um as was everybody at that point they were they were definitely shutting down the airport we at that point made the probably poor decision at the time but the decision we made thankfully to promise our people that we were going to find a way to get them out when at this point by the time we made that promise there were no americans left in afghanistan right. they really you know i sound like I'm taking credit for it. They got themselves out. I mean, they got themselves up to Masri Sharif safely. They dodged all sorts of checkpoints and had to go through hell there and dodge the Taliban moving around Masri Sharif for three weeks. Um, and then uh, in order to stay, and then what happened was, is a lot of other people came to us and were like, oh, you're trying to get a plane on the ground in Masri Sharif. We've got people that we need to get out to, other vets. Next thing we knew, there were close to 400 people uh, who, you know, it was a bunch of Afghan allies and their families who the Taliban were looking for in Masri Sharif. And so by then we had a group of us together working on this and we uh, rented a wedding hall because we had to stage them all in one place. You can't just like show up at the airport. Um, the way the game, I say the game, cause it's this messed up game of like capture the flag was yes. working at that point. Yeah. was the Taliban, if they were looking for you and they found you, they could do whatever they wanted. They could throw you in prison. They could put a bullet in your head. Um, but if they did not find you until you presented at the airport, visa cleared for a flight to another country, well, now it was an international incident if you didn't make it uh, on that plane and out of the country. But that meant you had to avoid the Taliban until you presented inside the airport. So it was very tricky. Um, and so uh, we had to stage everybody in one place. So we rented a wedding hall and we staged a wedding. Uh, we got a wedding planner and everything. And we had all these people show up at the wedding hall and act like they all knew each other. And at night they slept in the wedding hall. And during the day 
they had to party like it was a wedding. The thing was, we kept having delays because we were supposed to fly into Al-Yadid Air Base, but they were backed up with measles, I think, at the time and stuff like that. And so we were trying to make that happen, and it wasn't. And so instead of a one-day fake wedding, it was a four-day fake wedding. (laughs) Um, And the Taliban was starting to get suspicious, I think, as to what was going on in this wedding hall. Uh, and finally, um, they crashed the wedding. They came in and they they ate some food. They danced a few songs, uh, but they didn't, they didn't realize. I mean, the cover worked. They didn't realize that this whole wedding that they were crashing was the people they were looking for. And so then they left. We put our people on buses. And at that point, we had uh, struck a deal with the nation of Albania to, to let us land. Um, and so we flew close to 400 people, the people we refer to as the wedding party, um, to Albania. And they've been there for over a year now. Um, my friends and I ended up realizing, oh, we kind of have this thing we know how to do. And there were a lot of other people that needed to get out. So we worked with a bunch of other vets. And then we pulled a similar maneuver or supported other um, efforts a few times to the point where we ended up getting about Two, uh, over 2000 people out of the country. Um, and, uh, but, wow. and most of those people have been resettled, but the, you know, there's, there's over 300 left in Albania who've been there for a long time waiting on the U S state department. And now finally, uh, it looks like they're coming here in the next few months. The reason for St. Louis is because while we were doing all this, I wasn't doing much at all on the resettlement stuff. I was helping the local resettlement agency here in Kansas city a bit just with fundraising, um, but I wasn't, I wasn't doing much. I was totally focused on getting people out of the country. Right. Uh, meanwhile, people like you, um, a random car and, and others, um, in St. Louis were turning St. Louis into the very best place in the country for, uh, Afghan refugees to come to, um, everything from, you know, plans for an Afghan newspaper to a community center to, you know, setting people up with jobs and apartments as soon as they get in. And it's all based on the idea that, well, a lot of other cities are saying, hey, we can't take anymore. St. Louis is saying, hey, this was huge for us 30 years ago with the Bosnians. Uh, We need that sort of influx again. And so St. Louis uh, has just been so key in this. And I'm so excited to bring the whole wedding party to St. Louis. They're excited. I mean, it's a bunch of people who They've never been to St. Louis. They don't know anybody in St. Louis, (laughs) but they know that St. Louis wants them. And that's a really special thing. Yeah, it was funny. I I got involved because I went, I I think just, I got introduced through front, you know, Peter Lushier and some other people and and they need help. And I went to visit and there was, there's just supplies spilling out of the gym there at ISDF. And and I don't, I I had never been to Afghanistan. As you know, I'm I'm a three-time Iraq veteran. I never went to Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So I knew I couldn't, you know, when people are like you were helping people like navigate the streets of Kabul, I don't freaking even, I don't even know where it is. (laughs) I said, you know what I can do? I can organize this shit out of supplies. (laughs) I was, I was an XL, right? And I can organize soldiers by god mm-hmm. so i actually grabbed a guy it's funny I, I grabbed a young air force captain who was dropped off some stuff and was leaving i said hey come here bud where are you at he goes oh, i'm at scott airport. I'm, like, I'm gonna like help these guys get organized um i had no idea what i was doing i said can you maybe make me some connections there to get volunteers and sure enough that one young captain pulled the thread you know how these things go right you pull a thread yeah. and it just keeps mm-hmm. coming and next thing you know i've got the enlisted club and the young the junior officers club of scott air force base that's bringing cool. over dozens of airmen and and soldiers actually, because there's a lot of, it's a joint base. And, and we organized thousands and thousands of pounds of donations that this wonderful city was actually overwhelming ISTL with. I mean, we just couldn't even keep it straight and no matter inventory it. So it was really, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't help in Afghanistan, but at least I can, I can lead some troops when I have to. So it worked out great. Well, I'm just thrilled they're coming. So you have an idea of the timeline when they'll finally get out and get here? 
they're supposed to be here before June. And so the wow. sooner the better, because they've been, uh, they've been idle in Albania, uh, for a long time. And, you know, look, obviously they're, they're grateful, uh, to have escaped the Taliban and to be out of Afghanistan. But, you know, once you get over that sense of relief and, and the fact that you survived, as you, as you know, like at some point, you know, practical concerns take over and, right when you combine the period of COVID in Afghanistan with the period of sitting around in Albania with no work, cause you don't have a work permit and waiting to find out your fate. Well, they're just horror, just horribly bored. And, and the kids, you know, the kids haven't been in school in three years when you combine right. those two things. And, yeah. and so they've got real challenges ahead of them where, you know, like my buddy Raheem, uh, who's my translator's first cousin, who I got into this in the first place to, to work with, you know, his, his, uh, triplets are my son's age, you know, they're nine yeah. and they haven't been in school in three years and they're coming over here and they're in Albania taking some English classes, but like, you know, he's very anxious about yeah. the, the, the challenges in front of them between learning English, catching back up in school and that stuff, it really matters. And, and so we've been pushing really hard to get this done. Um, I'm really glad it's going to, and, you know, I've, I've had the chance to I think you were there to welcome the mm -hmm. one family already of one yes. of the, one of the four guys. Um, one of them, unfortunately we lost, he had a stress induced heart attack during the escape, but his family is coming. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I was able to welcome the Azimi family and it was super emotional for me. I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we have the whole wedding party come here. But what I like to point out to people is that, you know, this group of people, uh, yeah, they're refugees. Um, and maybe that makes people think of them as like unwanted, right? Because they, uh, they are escaping somewhere, but the, as you know, the kind of people who were chosen to work with us forces, whether it be in Iraq or Afghanistan, it's an industrious set of people. Right. And then when you, when you create a subset of that, and it's the industrious people who were so industrious that they, that they got out of the country during the fall of Taliban. And in fact, after, after the airport closed in Kabul, they still got out. That is, that is an incredibly industrious group of people. And so, yes, mm -hmm. when they get here, they are going to be your Uber or Lyft driver. They're going to yeah. be, you know, busing tables at first and that kind of thing, but it's going to be less than a generation. It's going to be these people who are going to be managers in major companies who are going to start companies. Uh, and they're going to make a huge difference in St. Louis because what I tell people all the time is just, it's important to know that, yeah, the first time you meet them, they may be your Uber or Lyft driver, or they may be grabbing your shopping cart and taking it back inside. But every one of them is a, is a flipping hero. Um, not just because of what they did overseas, but because of what they risked and what they went through to save their families. I mean, I had conversations with Raheem where I was like, look, man, um, for us to get you into this airport, this is back in August. Like it'd be a lot easier to get just you. I'm not going to ask you to do that, but like, your brother who helped U.S. forces and his family, your mom, your other brother who helped, you know, and all their kids. Like, dude, I, I don't know if we can get twelve people inside the gate. And he was like, "All of these people are in danger because of what I did. I can't leave any of them." And that's who all of these people are. And it's a special group. Yeah, yeah, I get it better than anybody. I, I, I think you and I talked before, but in my history, yeah. of course, I lost my first interpreter in 2004, mm -hmm. uh, right after we left uh, Mosul. And uh, his daughter, I just actually was posting the other day because uh, I was literally talking to them today. 
uh, his, his daughter is in college at the university of Richmond now. And, yeah. and it took us, That's so you cool. know, helped her get into college, right. We talk about full story, but you're right. The terror still lives from, you know, his, his widow is still terrified of, of being found all these 18 years later, they've been in the United States. So, you yeah. know, these folks will bring with them a, a, some real tough times and some tough experiences that we're going to need mm-hmm. to be supportive of, but, but it's good for America. And that goes back to our democracy discussion, right? Is this, you know, the, the average American should care about how we support our Afghan partners and, and how we support, our veterans, which, which is, you know, I've had the privilege to join the capital campaign committee for the Veterans Community Project here yeah, in thank St. You. Louis, the expansion. Oh, it's an honor. I mean, I, and but you've been spearheading the national expansion of the third year program, you know, for a couple of years now. And the, the first time you and I met, actually, if you remember mm-hmm. my old company with ScoutComs and you joined BCP. And one of my clients for a long time was National Coalition for Homeless Veterans and the, the Home Depot Foundation and and all. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I remember talking to you that first time. And for those who don't understand I, I want to set this framing really importantly. It, most organizations that work with veterans will will follow the rules. And the rule, one of the big rules that I like about VCP that's different is for those who understand, if you are kicked out of the military for drugs or a you know, crime or whatever reason, maybe if you get a dishonorable or less than honorable discharge, you are not considered a veteran, right? So when you right. go for veteran services, when you go for veteran healthcare, you don't get that. And it's been a challenge in our community because we know that in the modern era, especially with the GWAT, you know, PTSD, you know, I think you mm-hmm. and I may be familiar with that term. Yeah, sometimes, yeah. People, sometimes people self-medicate, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. PTSD is the underframing of so many problems. Sometimes, you know, the, of the cycle, sometimes it leads to crimes, unfortunately. But PTSD is that 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 concrete foundation. And and so when we throw people out, um, they are left to suffer. And we and we have a, a veteran suicide crisis. That veteran suicide crisis is tied to our homelessness crisis. You, when you know, after you after you left the race for mayor, you you had met the folks with VCP on our story. You've taken this mission on, and 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 mm-hmm. one, I say, why VCP, and two. Where are you going, man? I mean, it's it's pretty exciting what you guys are doing. You started in Kansas City, and now here we are uh, here in St. Louis and elsewhere, right? Yeah, it's the best civilian job I've ever had. Um, I'm <laughs> really Good. I'm really grateful to you and everybody else on the Capital Campaign Committee in St. Louis. The Capital Campaign Committees are a huge part of what we do because, you know, everywhere we go, we build local. We 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 build right. a local organization uh, that's going to be staffed locally, funded locally, um, and yeah, to your point. Um, there are so many people, and most Americans have no idea about this. Heck, most veterans don't know until they no, start trying of, to access right. the system. Really doesn't know. Yep. Yeah, um, I didn't really know how many yeah. vets were are not eligible for the VA, whether it is because of a any anything like an other than honorable discharge or dishonorable, or it could just be you know you were in the Guard and Reserve and you were activated but not for long enough, or you were active duty but not for long enough, or there's so many different things um, to where a like 30% of people who wore the uniform uh, and and served their country are not eligible to go to the VA. And most Americans have no idea about that. Yep. You know, um, our mutual friend, Kellen, always gives this example, which I think is a really good one, which is she always points out that if you, let's say you were in the New York or the Maryland National Guard or something, and after January 6th, you were mobilized and you spent five months guarding the Capitol, but you never went to Iraq or Afghanistan and you get out after your four years. The United States government does not consider you a veteran, yep. um, which is crazy. Exactly. Uh, yep. And and so what we do that's different is, um, and it's why the capital campaigns are so important because we have to raise privately because of this. Uh, what we do that's so different from the government is we have a simple rule. If you raised your right hand and swore the oath, you qualify for 100% of our services. We don't have any other questions. Um and that is lowering that barrier is huge. It creates so much more buy-in. Uh, it, it 
makes it so people have so much more success, whether in our outreach program or in our residential program. And the downside to it is, is it means we can uh, qualify for almost no federal funds. Um, right. Now, it's not just that we serve so many more people. It's also other things like the fact that we believe that uh, you know the client to case manager ratio can't go above 10 to 1 whereas the federal government says hey you're not efficient if every case manager doesn't have at least 25 clients and it's like you can't do a good job that way right now i'm not right. trying to knock the va i go to the va for my health care and it's been fantastic i wrote a whole book about how great it was yes, you did <laughs> um, you know, so so i it's not that and we work really well with the va but um it is an it is an enormous gap, and what it comes down to. I mean, this is ultimately a political podcast, so the politics of this is um, that far too often the central question in all veterans policy seems to be whether spoken or not. Uh, how do we make sure nobody who doesn't deserve it gets this service? And there's two major flaws with that. One. Uh, doing it that way means that a lot of people who do deserve it won't get the service because you have to create such a bureaucratic labyrinth to protect the service, you know, from people yeah. getting it who don't deserve it. Two, yeah. and this is the most important one, it assumes that there are people who don't deserve it. And and there just aren't. Because when you think about the criminal justice reform debate, for instance, like if we're going to use the dishonorable discharge um, example, yeah. you know, let's let's say it's somebody, and we've had this case before, who got three DUIs, one each one between each of their four combat deployments. Right. Well, we, we know what was going on there, right? But let's say instead um, that they got out of the military, they didn't have any trouble when they were in the military, but they got out of the military and they commit murder. And then they go, they go to prison, they go to prison, for, let's say for 40 years. And when they get out, they're 65, they get Medicare. <laughs> Nobody thinks they shouldn't get Medicare. Nobody thinks they shouldn't get social security. Right. But yet, if they had committed that crime while they were in the military, we would say they're not allowed to go to the VA. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't actually make any sense. Those are two completely inconsistent ideas. If Timothy McVeigh had not been uh, executed, if he had, you know, mm -hmm. spent his entire term in prison and for some reason got out at 60, he would have gotten Medicare and Social Security because he didn't bomb. Uh, he didn't he didn't commit his bombing while he was in the military. And that yep. it just doesn't make any sense. No, no, and, and it leaves so many out, and and it also leaves it, it. It goes to that the we talk about this a lot in the show here is about the institutions being prepared for this moment in time, and it, and and I think I spent ten years as a veterans advocate before I went into politics, and and it was the same thing though. It was the the institution that is the VA, the institution that is our government systems, and even our nonprofit support systems weren't necessarily prepared for this modern system, right? Where we recognize that. That PTSD is a thing that, it, and it is, it can't, it isn't necessarily, you know, I think you and I have a similar experience. I, my experience with PTSD, of course, is that I never thought I had PTSD, nothing bad. I didn't get blown mm -hmm. up. Just right. everybody around me did, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that we now know, you know, but we didn't know that. We didn't know that in 1991 when, when my first guys got killed, we didn't know that in 2003. It's sort of a modern, a more modern interpretation. And we haven't changed the rules much in a lot of ways to recognize mm -hmm. that, that underlying all these people, underlying these traumas uh, is the trauma. And then on top of that is things. And like you said, it's addiction. It's, it's, it's out, it's abuse, if you will, terrible things that you should pay a price for. We're not excusing those things, but you're right. We, we also have to take care of these folks. I mean, and that's the thing I think that drives me a little bit crazy is we see the, we see that people will say, well, you know, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, uh, um, yeah, they, they shouldn't get these benefits. They should get the privileges of being a veteran. They should be recognized and honored. But if we're going to stop at the same voice, say, well, we got the suicide problem veterans like, well, okay, well, 
pick 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 one. Yeah. <laughs> you you can't have both. You can't you can't resolve the suicide crisis and then ignore people who have who have who have suffered from their service. Well, you know. And at, at the end of the day, what a lot of it comes down to is that first thing I mentioned is that you know because the truth is is that the amount of the percentage of people we serve who have an other than honorable or dishonorable discharge is actually super low. It's like single yeah, digits. I bet. But, but we do serve, uh, you know, uh, almost half the people we serve, I think, are in some way either not eligible for the VA or not connected to the VA. And it's something we have to help them do. And the reason I mention that is because I think the when I think about one statistic, one number that is really at the heart of what we do, uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the stat that 20 veterans a day take their life, uh, 20 or 22, depending on, you know, which study you look at. What most people don't know, and what I only learned about a year ago, is that on average, out of that 20, 16 of the people who take their life at the time that that happens are not connected to any veteran-specific services of any kind. Right. Now, most of them are eligible for them, but they're not connected to them because they're, they're you know, because of the hurdles to get them in many cases. And because the truth is, is that whether you're talking about a veteran or anybody else, people usually don't ask for help more than once. And if you don't, if you're not able to immediately say yes, when they ask for help, they're going to be discouraged. They're already in a place where they're asking for help. They're not in the best place. You've got to be able to grab them and say yes, the first or at worst, the second try. And that's what we're able to do at Veterans Community Project. And that's how it saves so many lives. Well, and 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 circling back and closing that loop on on your book, you know your your book is about is your journey through PTSD, the challenges you went through. Um, you found yourself VCP. I know all the proceeds from the book are going to VCP, which is yeah. an honorable, uh, as always, the honorable choice. Like I said, make. I'm very bad at making a profit. Uh, <laughs> Clearly, you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know that book. It's an important book. I mean, the, the, it's a powerful story that you wrote. Uh, I read it cover to cover in a day and a half when you first sent it to me. Thanks, man. Yeah. Um, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate me, uh, it, it's impact on me from my own, my own journey. The reaction has been incredible. You know, I think I was just looking at your Twitter feed today that all the good folks who are, who are putting on their list and, and, and posting mm-hmm. pictures and telling about what, what it matters. I, 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 what strikes you most about what people are saying about that journey and the perspective you've given them. I mean, you, you probably, you've seen a lot of it now, at the end mm-hmm. of the year here, as you look at your end of year, I mean, what strikes you most about, are, are they learning about what it means to serve and, and the price we pay sometimes? Or what's what's your big takeaway right now? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, I do hear a lot of people say, you know, it gave me a new appreciation of, of what it means to serve or to be part of a military family. And I, I like that, you know, it, it's important to me. I think there are a lot of places where you can get that. I'm proud that my book is one of those places. But the the stuff that I think is more particular and the stuff that really motivated me to write the book um, are a few things. One, uh, probably first and foremost, um, it is the uh, veterans who I hear from, and I hear from them frequently, uh, who tell me that reading the book allowed them to see that they need help or allowed them to see that they need to go back for help again, or allowed them to feel better about the fact that they got help. You know, there's just a lot of veterans, combat veterans or not, who were able to see themselves in some way in the book. And that, that means a lot to me, but probably tied with that are the, the hundreds of trauma therapists uh, who I've heard from, whether they be veterans or not, uh, veteran-specific trauma therapists or not, um, who tell me how much it, it's it's helped them do better in their practice or that they've given it to uh, to patients. I had a guy the other day um, reach out to me um, and tell me that he's about to go into the um, uh, inpatient program 
uh, at, uh, I can't, I'm not going to say where, cause I don't want to, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't want to like dime the dude out, but, uh, he's a, he's a vet and he's about to go into the inpatient program at, at one of the bases in this country. He's still on active duty. And he told me that, uh, in the like two weeks before he started the program, they gave him my book and they huh. were like, you should, you should read this. And he's at my understanding is it's like what they're doing there. That means so much to me. Um, wow. because, because the the folks who do that kind of work have, you know, Nick, my therapist, uh, who I talk about in the book, I mean, he's made such a tremendous impact on my life. And and then finally, there's a second category that I'd say is sort of tied for me, and that is people who never served um, but have sustained trauma of some kind. And the book helps them understand that it's that they need to go get help, and that it doesn't matter whether it was in war or not. That trauma is trauma. And then the other group are the people who tell me. Uh, that they really, now that they've read the book, they understand their dad or their brother or somebody like that in a way that they never did before. Unfortunately, a lot of those people, you know, their, their dad is no longer with us. Right. Um, but I do think it's given them some sense of peace uh, because they're able to say like, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the differences, a lot of the things that, you know, I had trouble with, with my, with my dad. Uh, now I understand what was going on with him, um, because if their dad was a vet, so, you know, all that stuff, but more than anything, it's, it's just the people who reach out and say like, whether they're vets or not, they're just like, this book helped me know I need to go get help because that was really what I wanted. I, I wrote the book for me 14 years ago, you know, because there, there wasn't, there wasn't a book out there for somebody who has PTSD, but doesn't know it. Uh, and so I, I wanted that's why it was so difficult to write because I, I wanted to write it in such a way where I was returning to my former mindset chronologically. So I don't start availing myself as a writer of, you know, of the terms I learned in therapy until I've gotten you to the point in the story where I'm in therapy. Because if I tell you, Oh, I was hypervigilant, you're gonna be like, okay. But if I say to you, uh, you know, I felt like I was in danger all the time. And I felt like everybody else was crazy for not seeing how dangerous the world was. Well, if you're hypervigilant, but no one's diagnosed you with it, that's going to make some sense to you. You're going to understand what that is. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was the challenge of it. And I, I'm really gratified to know that, 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 that worked the way I wanted it to. Well, and I've, I've told you personally before, and I want people in here to know, you know, we, cause you and you and Diane wrote a, uh, an op-ed, you're a piece, you've been, I think it was a medium or something, uh, that that's when I you got my attention and I, and I was living in Missouri then. So, you know, I, I'd followed you, but I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it spoke from, I had just started my process of my, my recovery mm-hmm. and, and recognizing and, and it came because everything kind of came to a head with business and professional. And, and just like you, you, you're at the top of your game. I had my best business year ever when everything collapsed, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you're right. And I, I've, I've seen the same thing. It's funny. You mentioned that, how, I've been very open about my my journey um, through suicidal. I, I, had, I had wrestled with suicidal ideations for many years, and I didn't tell anybody. But it's funny when I've come out and told people how often people look a lot like you and me, like especially me. I'm older than you are. I'm 57. Um, fellow guys who were lieutenant colonels or guys who were colonels mm-hmm. will reach out to me and say, "Yeah, you know, I think I may be struggling." Because oh, like, yeah, yeah, dude, you, you, how many soldiers did you lose? Well, I lost ten. Like, dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we, we, we don't lose people. We don't lose people without it taking a piece of us with us. And, 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 it's, and, you know, the culture of the military, senior people don't get help, right? We, right. You, know, <laughs> you know, officers, officers don't go home, you know, they don't, don't mm-hmm. they don't go home from their last tour because they were suicidal. You know, it's like, so I think there is, there's a great piece of that for, for guys like us. And, and I really want to go back to what you said specifically 
we don't own trauma as veterans. I think that's something that, that in this 20 mm-hmm. years, the global war on terror, right? Everything's PTSD is just us. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you have a car, I mean, as I'll, as I've said, you know, my, my greatest trauma started with losing my first wife and child in a car accident. It had nothing to do with my mm-hmm. service. I was in a meeting, but that didn't right. happen in combat. That, that's no different than anyone else. You just, you know, my brother just lost his, his wife. So it's gratifying to hear folks recognize and see themselves in our experience and understand where they can get help too. So, well, I appreciate it. And the book's doing great. I understand, you know, still doing well. And, yeah, and, it's you know, gratifying. I, yeah, I'm real proud. Well, I'm real proud to know you. Real proud of what you do. Uh, Thanks, well, I, I'm not going to keep you much longer. I know you got to take care of, uh, you have sick family members. Uh, you know, this has been a great chat. Uh, we could find you on your podcast, Majority 54. Um to Afghan Rescue Project, I'm sure to support VCP. I'm, I'm very eager to give people support, support the Veterans Community Project, the work we're doing in St. Louis. We're building the village mm-hmm. as we speak here in St. Louis. It's looking gorgeous. Uh, we actually, I expect we'll be sticking some of our first veterans in here in the next quarter, as a matter of fact, which is yep. incredible time. And, and we need it here in St. Louis. And what I love, especially about the VCP here in St. Louis is it's in a tar town that needs it, right? It's in a part of town yeah. that is, they're going to, they're gonna, they, they've, they've put a foothold in a part of town that needs some redevelopment is going to need some of that kind of service. So it, it's really graphing to be a part of that. So I hope people will look it up with that where can people find you your stuff majority 54 how do we hunt you down online jason sure uh well i'm i'm at jasoncander.com and then i'm at yep. jason Cander on twitter and instagram and you know I, I i got a post account i don't know if i'll ever use it we'll see i'm liking uh, it man i've got about yeah. seventeen thousand followers on there oh, really? <laughs> you know, i had to look back very, and see it's if all I very chill any. vibe i mean if you're looking yeah. for a chill vibe post this place to go you know yeah no i probably i've been a, a little less uh attentive to twitter which isn't been an altogether bad thing um but but yeah so it's at jason candor candor with a k uh and yeah man i appreciate it fred i appreciate your help with vcp stl and i appreciate you having me oh i appreciate being on man well, another great conversation this week. I, I really appreciate you joining the show uh, from the home studio. As you can see, we're uh, we're not in the studio this week. We had uh, we got hit by Southwest Airlines and 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 sickness and everything else, so we stayed at home this this week. Um, as always, we're sponsored by my friends at Vi Media. They are a terrific marketing partner for you if you're looking for any of your digital marketing needs, either in St. Louis or nationwide. They are able to be found at vi.media, v-i-e.media on the internet, and they can help you out. As always, you can find me at FP Wellman on Twitter and FP Wellman on post and FP Wellman official on Instagram and yada, yada, yada. We've got some really exciting things coming up and I, I can't wait to share with you. Um, next week, we're looking for a special guest for January 6th. I uh, hope knock that out. I'll be back in DC myself, so we may be remote again. In the meantime, thanks for joining the show. If you subscribe, we appreciate you. If you haven't subscribed, get on it. Subscribe. Hit that subscribe button hard. Share with your friends. Do it, Give us a like, maybe even a review. It would be much appreciated on Apple, wherever you get your podcast. In the meantime, stay safe out there. Stay warm out there. I hope you enjoy your new year, and let's keep up the fight for our country. Thanks for joining the show.